0: Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulton. I'm a podcast host, a professor, and someone who cares a lot about you understanding the science around us, especially that in the area of biotechnology. So today's topic is one I've wanted to address for a long time. It's the topic of prions a fascinating area of infectious particles that aren't alive it's not it's not viruses or bacteria or or uh, fungus and in the days of covid if you really wanted something else to have to worry about <laughs> here we go you know here's prions and it is a fascinating topic that has some very interesting roots and potentially some uh, application to a number of uh, important neurological diseases so we'll, today we're speaking with Dr. Cassandra Terry. She's a reader in protein pathology at the London Metropolitan University in London. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Terry.
1: Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for having me on here.
0: Yeah, this is really, really good. I really appreciate you have uh, taking the time to meet with us because this is a topic that I think has, it's just so captivating. And we really need to start with the basics. And there's a disease called Kuru what is Kuru and why is it important for us to to understand prion-related disease?
1: Okay. Yes. So, so Kuru is a really, really interesting disease. And, um, Kuru is, um, a disease that was found, um, in the tribes of, um, people in Papua New Guinea and, um, what, you, what they used to do as part of their culture is, when uh, members of their family, members of their tribe um, would would die, um, what they would do is they would actually um, essentially eat parts of the um, of the of the person that had uh, deceased, and um, and you know many years later when scientists were looking into this, what happened was a lot of people came down with this strange um, these, these, these strange symptoms and they couldn't really work out why so many people within these tribes were getting these symptoms. Um, so when scientists eventually looked into it to try and work out what was going on and um, they, they, they they discovered they were doing this practice, this ritualistic cannibalism and what happened was essentially um, um, parts of the body such as um, like the central nervous system and the brain um, were eaten um by members of the tribe and those people who ate you know these parts of the brain um and p- parts of the body that were essentially infected with prions they they then got passed on to people who'd eaten them within the tribe so essentially what's happening is um people within this community came down with the same disease this disease called kuru so it was it's been directly linked to the fact that um members of this tribe were essentially um, contracting um, this disease by ingesting um, other um, humans who had this these prions, essentially. I mean, it, it's a fascinating disease, and luckily, this. Um this ritualistic cannibalism has now been banned, it's now been stopped, and there's been no more cases of Kuru. Um, But from a scientific point of view, it's very, very interesting to to see that actually, this was one of the first reported cases of uh, transmission of a disease from humans to other humans. So this is why it's really, really important to understand Kuru um, from a scientific point of view, because it shows that prions can be transmitted um, from humans to other humans.
0: Now, when you say it, you say prion, and I've always said prion, and I've taken classes where they said Prion, is this like a tomato tomato thing yeah. like a U.K. OK. <laughs>
1: yeah. I, I call them prions. Other people call them prions. It, it, it's completely you. This, I don't think there's a, a correct pronunciation, you know, I call them prions. You can call them prions. It's fine.
0: <laughs> I, I just wanted to make sure I got it right, because you, you don't want to talk to a world expert and get it wrong, so thats I, by, uh, So could you tell us more about what is a prion?
1: So um, they are essentially transmissible um, infectious proteins. So they are um, proteins which are found within your body. And what they do is they can convert into an abnormally folded form of, a, of the protein. And they can actually be transmitted um, to other species and cause disease. So they're essentially an infectious protein particle.
0: It's really interesting stuff. So so you say they're naturally found in the body. What is their role in the central nervous system?
1: Well, this is, this is a really important question. So um, obviously lots of, of people, lots of scientists have had, tried to look at, so what what, it, what are they actually meant to be doing when they're not in the disease state? And actually, if you look at mouse models, if you knock this protein out, this PRPC prion protein, if you knock it out in mouse models, the mice are absolutely fine. So, exactly what it's doing um, in the body is not entirely clear. So, there's lots of different theories of what it could be doing, but to this day, we're still not entirely sure what the prion protein does when it's not causing disease.
0: Yeah, I remember some old data, probably 1990s, where they would show that maybe there was some sort of circadian disruption, like there, because they would have wheel running behaviors that were a little bit off when they took out, when you uh, knocked out the prion protein. And, yeah. then, uh, so 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 but but very subtle effects of the protein right yeah
1: i mean yeah there's nothing conclusive to date that we know that that's happening so um i mean it's fascinating you know why have we got this 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 protein in our body if we if we don't really know what it's actually doing and you can knock it out in mice and they seem to be fine so yeah it's a really good question people are still trying to understand what its role actually is
0: well and So you have a protein that's normally folded and doing something, but we don't know what it is yet when it misfolds, it becomes problematic and what holds it in its correct state that is perturbed that leads it to get into its infectious state.
1: So, yes. So, so, so again, that's, you know, that's really interesting. We, the sort of mechanisms behind, why it misfolds it forms these abnormal forms is um not entirely clear we do know that it's the prion protein is absolutely needed so in these knockout models if you knock the prion protein out the mice uh, in mouse models the mice do not get prion disease so all we know that this prion protein is directly related to getting disease so what keeps it in its normal form and what then um you know helps convert it into this abnormal form what's the trigger it's not entirely clear so the precise mechanisms of what's going on is it's it's still not clear what you know what what is the trigger that makes this protein um go from this soluble um normal form this prpc form into this abnormal form which goes on um to form more and more of these abnormal forms these prpsc as we call them it's not it's still not known
0: and when you uh have transmissible disease say from person to person how is this happening let's just go backwards even more maybe Um, let's talk about some of the other prion related diseases and people have heard about mad cow and uh, maybe have heard of scrapie Um, those are prion related diseases but can you tell me a little bit more about those diseases
1: Yes, yeah, so, so we know that um, prion diseases um, can occur in animals and they can occur in humans. So there's a number of different um, animal prion diseases. So we have scrapie, which occurs in sheep, and they're called scrapie because the, the sheep um, scrape themselves. They're always, you know, sc- scraping the outside of their body. And in um, cows, um, we have uh, BSE, which I'm sure most people would have heard of. Um, so these are animal diseases. Um, In humans, we have um, things such as classical CJD, variant CJD, um, KURU, um, and we also have things called FFI and GSS. So these are different types of prion diseases in animals and humans. And we do know that that, um, prions from animal diseases such as BSE... Um, can be transmitted to humans. And this is we this is all the work that was done that showed that um, this, this BSE, which people refer to as the mad cow disease, uh, we know that BSE um, can get transmitted to humans, and when it does, it forms this variant CJD. So this is the human form of BSE. And that in order to get transmitted, and um, this was shown by um, an acquired form where the um where essentially um, animals who had who were infected with BSC were ingested um, and therefore it then went on and caused um, variant CJD in humans. Um, So there are different types of uh, prion diseases. So that's one type that's acquired disease. Um, We also know that we have um, a genetic form. Um, So we know that there's various different mutations which have been associated with different prion diseases. And we also know that there's another form called sporadic uh, prion diseases. Now, these sporadic forms we think account for most of all prion diseases. They account for about 80% of all prion diseases. So, most of them are caused by a, um, a sporadic, they occur sporadically, and we don't know exactly what's actually triggering that.
0: Yeah, so there's a little bit to unpack there. So, the um, genetic variants, are they uh, just mutations that um, don't allow the correct folding to be maintained
1: as well? Yeah. So, um, so, so the the genetic forms. Yeah. So people have looked at um, the various different mutations, and they've looked at the structure of the, um, the of the protein of the PRPC protein to see, you know, as you were saying, what's actually happening sort of to the protein and the folding, and the protein itself doesn't seem to be that much different from the normal, non mutated form. So um, the structure of the protein is not changing that much, but it could be something to do with the charges on the protein that have changed. So again, this is something that's still not entirely clear. How can having certain um, mutations make you more susceptible or more resistant to prion diseases? Um, You know, what's actually happening further downstream? So again, that's not entirely understood, but we know there is definitely a genetic um, factor involved.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and, and you mentioned a lot of um, acronyms in that last, last bit where talked about CJD and FFI yeah. and BSC. So CJD is something Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, and uh, FFI is fatal familial insomnia. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, these are, these are really insidious, devastating uh, neurological conditions. Could you tell us a little bit more about the relevant pathologies and the way that you, they manifest?
1: Yes, yeah, so so all of the prion diseases, unfortunately, are fatal. We don't have any cures um, for any of these diseases um, currently, um, and I mean they're all they're, they're all um, you know terrible um, diseases. Um, what they all have in common is they tend to have um, you know we, there's this long incubation period. So you may um, you may not you know the disease might start, but the symptoms might not occur for maybe 20, 30 years later, as was found in things such as variant CJD. Um, however, what happens is when the, um, when the symptoms actually start, um, the, you know, the person comes down with the disease quite quickly. Um, so I mentioned a few of these diseases. Yeah, so things such as um, fatal familial insomnia, so FFI, for short. Um, this is a disease which affects the thalamus. So it actually um, causes insomnia, as the name suggests, because it's um, affecting the thalamus part of the brain. Um, And there are, um, you know, there are other diseases as well, such as, so for example, these different prion diseases, um, they manifest themselves as having different um, symptoms because of the different parts of the brain that are affected. So you have these misfolded proteins which essentially accumulate in different parts of the brain. And depending on which part of the brain they accumulate and um, form these these holes, these spongy... If in, in the brain, you get this spongy form, um, encephalopathy. So you get these holes in the brain occurring. Um, and these it's essentially destroying certain parts of the brain. So for example, as I said, FFI affects the thalamus, so it affects uh, the sleep patterns. Um, Kuru, um and GSS, there's Gerstmann-Streisler-Schneiker uh, syndrome, and um, this affects the cerebellum. Um, a classical CJD will affect uh, the cerebral cortex, um, and this is involved in things such as Memory and, um, and 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 visual um, effects. So this will impair your memory and vision. So depending on which part of the brain is actually targeted, will actually obviously have an impact on the type of symptoms that the um, the person will actually get.
0: Well, let me ask a couple of maybe kind of practical questions. These are pretty rare diseases, aren't they?
1: Yes. Oh yes. I think it's something like uh, one in a million people will be affected by them. So yes, they're very they're, they're quite rare diseases. Yes.
0: And. The way that most of these you mentioned, we know that there's acquired forms, we know that there are, um, as, as you called like the genetic forms, mm-hmm. but in the acquired ones, because I think this is the one that most people are thinking about, mm-hmm. don't you have to consume, uh, neurological ma- matter? You have to, I mean, it seems like you would have to either eat brains, which some cultures do, mm-hmm. um, or you know, or nerve, nerve, uh, nerve tissue somehow, um, or, um, uh, and then have that get through digestion to somehow find its way through the you know blood brain barrier and all the other things that protect the cns uh, in order for this to even have exposure to your native prions and and is is that correct or how are these things mechanistically
1: uh, affecting people yeah that's a really good question so yes yeah, so these acquired forms we know that you can get them through um uh, so, the variant CJD you get through um, eating um, BSE infected meat, um, but there are other types as well. So, for example, via blood transfusions, it could occur, and um, if you know through medical procedures, because we know that prions can stick to metal, so um, that's another way of being contaminated. So, how they actually move throughout the body, and um, we know that they can move through blood, and um, we know that obviously that. Um, you know, it's really interesting how you can ingest something. How does it get from the gastrointestinal, um, you know, system into the brain? That's a really good question. And that's not entirely clear. We know that they can uh, transport around the blood. Um, and how they actually do this, it could be that, you know, we know that a lot of these, these prions that form in the brain are actually quite large. So perhaps um, they're fragmenting off. Um, and forming smaller particles which can then flow more freely around the body Um, and then once they do that they can then seed other proteins forming forming more of these aggregated forms Um, perhaps that's what's happening but but in answer to your question we don't exactly know how these prions can spread from one part of the body to the other it's still something that's um, of of real interest to obviously if we understand that we can stop it from spreading.
0: Wow, this is just such a cool topic. (laughs) We're talking with Dr. Cassandra Terry. She's a reader in protein pathology from the London Metropolitan University, and we're discussing the topic of prions. Uh, She recently had a mini-review article that was in Frontier's in molecular uh, neurosciences and uh, this was in 2019 she were talking about the topic of prions and when we come back we'll talk about their potential relationship with other neurological disorders this is the Talking Biotech podcast and we'll be back in just a moment
2: would your participation in social media save lives Early in COVID-19, we thought the world would finally gravitate towards science and evidence, especially in response to a global pandemic. However, from national leadership to conspiracy-plagued internets, it's clear we're suffering from an information pandemic as well. Now, here at the Talking Biotech Podcast, we give you the information to battle disinformation around technology, as it applies mostly to agriculture and medicine. Information here allows you, the listener, to participate in broader discussions with confidence, helping to advance innovation to application. Today, all of us need to be engaging the copious nonsense that plagues social media, especially in the area of COVID-19. Crackpot claims, bad science, and poor quality publication are only deepening the pandemic, at least here in the USA. Kudos to the rest of you. So this is a call to the science-minded. Identify who you can trust. Share their content on social media networks. Join the conversation. Gently and kindly refute false information. Remember, you'll never change the mind of someone unwilling to learn, but the internet is a spectator sport. Become the trusted source of information to help those that don't know who to trust. Help them realize who to trust, and make better decisions that could ultimately save lives. Improving the world with a simple act of kind communication, that's what the Talking Biotech Podcast is all about. And your participation has never been more important.
0: And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Cassandra Terry. She's a reader in protein pathology from the London Metropolitan University and an expert in prions or prions, if you will, and, you know whatever works for you. And they're curious, infectious particles that aren't alive. You can get a disease by being exposed to the misfolded form of a protein that then influences the proteins inside you leading to disease. And I guess the big question, uh, you know, going to the things that you mentioned in your review is some of the things that we're learning about uh, the structure and prion disease. Uh, between pr- the structural relationship between prions and prion disease uh, from microscopic analyses. So, what are we seeing?
1: Yeah. So, um, so for many years we've known what the structure of the uh, correctly folded form of the prion protein is. So, PRPC. So, there are high resolution structures of it. We know that it's a glycosylated protein um, and it's soluble. It's you know, um, it's a small protein um and but we kn- no one really knew what the structure of the disease associated form was so um so the research that i was looking at was trying to understand um when these this prpc misfolds into these um, misfolded forms which cause disease and um, you know what do they actually look like so in order to um to work this out uh what we had to do is develop a purification system to try and pull them out of the brain and obviously you know there's lots of different things in the brain so trying to develop a way of pulling them out um and took many many years and uh, once we managed to do this um, um we looked at the structure by electron microscopy so um electron microscopy is is a great technique to use because you can directly visualize um these misfolded forms at you know quite a high resolution and you can get quite a lot of detail from them so so what we were looking at is um when we know that now that when this this these PRP proteins misfold, they form these um, large kind of rod-like fibrillar structures. And these structures are really interesting because they, um, they just look like they're sort of clumped together. But you can, when you can kind of separate them out by sonicating slightly, you can see that they actually do have some defined structure. Um, so they are formed of these paired fibres. And these pair fibres, there's there's a a gap in between these paired fibres. So they're not stuck directly to one another. There's, you know, there's a visible gap between them. And we're not entirely sure um, what's going on in this gap, but we know that um, the protein has sugars attached to it. It's glycosylated. And one theory is that perhaps the sugars are in, in this gap somehow, and that's why they're not, that's why it's kind of forcing them apart, um, but we know that they are joined together quite strongly because we never just see one of these protofibrils on their own. So what's really interesting is that these 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 prions. These prion rods—they um, actually look quite different from other proteins um, from other neurodegenerative diseases. So they don't look like PAL, they don't look like alpha synuclein. Um, yes, these are the proteins are made of paired fibers, but they don't have this gap, and they don't have the same dimensions um, as the ones in prion disease. So um, it, you know, they do seem to have quite a unique um, structure, which is really, really interesting.
0: Yeah, that's uh, so what is the connection to disease? Is it really a question that these just physically clump together and take up the space that uh, was previously there just between neuron neuron connections that now kind of crowd out and break those connections? Or is is that where what, what actually causes the degeneration?
1: Well, it's again. It's you know we we're not entirely sure exactly how it's causing disease, but we did experiments where we took these um, these rod-like these prion fibrils and um, injected them into mouse models, and they direct we showed that they directly cause disease. Exactly how they're doing this, um, we're not sure, but the the brains of the mice um looked exactly the same um in terms of you know that they, they have these large um, aggregates. In their brain, they have this, you know, these, um, you can see in histology, you can see that they look the same as as the prions that we, you know, the mouse that we got them from originally. So they're replicating the disease precisely. Um, exactly how it's killing, we know that the prion rods um, are infectious and they cause disease, but we, we're not sure that they actually kill the neurons. So there's another theory that we think that perhaps there's another Uh, Because from cell culture experiments that we've done and from, you know, looking at um, animal models, we know that um, they are not toxic to cells. They're not toxic to these neurons. So whilst they cause disease, we don't think that these rods are actually toxic and killing the neurons. Um, How they're having their effect, we're not sure. Um, but we think perhaps there's something else in the brain, whether it's a different morphology of the prion protein, we're not sure. But there's something else um, within the brain which is actually causing the neurons to die.
0: It's really fascinating because people have been studying this for decades now, and we still know so little. It's really interesting. But how are how are prions and understanding their physical connections and their structure in the brain, how are they helping us understand other diseases that have similarities to the, you know, prion-like seeded misfolding?
1: Yeah, so, so by understand, so understanding the structure of these misfolded forms, um, we hope to be able to understand, you know, how are they propagating? How are they forming these, you know, these large aggregates? Um, by understanding that, It may help us to um, because we've got good animal models and we've got good cell culture models for prion disease, and we can, you know, we're we're hoping to get a better understanding of how this process actually occurs. And if we can understand it in prion disease, we may be able to help understand how it works in other diseases. Um, I say this because many of these other diseases, such as Alzheimer's disease, have been called prion-like diseases, and it's because it's thought that the this misfolding process, this pro, this um, this process where you have these diseased forms which can then recruit some of the normal form to produce more and more of this abnormal form, than, and spreading from cell to cell, this prion-like mechanism, it's been reported in these other diseases such as Alzheimer's disease. So actually it's quite important to, if we can understand it in one disease, it may shed light on how it works in these other diseases. And of course, if we understand the structure of these different misfolded forms, if we understand the mechanism of how these um, misfolded forms are forming, then obviously that's going to be really important for designing therapeutics to try and stop or slow down this process.
0: Well, when you start thinking about therapeutics, we can look at some of the mechanisms we know are involved in some of the other neurological diseases. And you know, just for the listeners, th- there's a way that proteins that are present are targeted Uh, For destruction. So it's called ubiquitination. And when you tag it with a little protein, little peptide tag called ubiquitin, it kind of says, send me to the garbage. And we know that uh, things like Lewy body dementia are caused by a breakdown in proper ubiquitination of the stuff called alpha synuclein. And that is, you know, the main feature of this. It's a classic example. And is there any evidence that? the prion proteins are ubiquitinated or that, you know, the the switch to the uh, pathological form is somehow because of a lack of degradation.
1: Yeah. So there's a lot of debate sort of in the, in the prior field of whether, you know, these, the prions are the cause or the consequence of the disease. Um, So, you know, are you seeing, are they actually causing the disease themselves or is it, you know, when you see these, Aggregates in the brain—is this just a byproduct of the process? But yes, what's—I ha- mean, obviously the the proteolysis mechanisms are not working correctly because if that was the case, then obviously these proteins, which are um, misfolded incorrectly, would be broken down and removed from the body and we know that they're not, they accumulate. So yes, there's obviously something wrong with the um, the degradation processes, um, the, the, you know, of these proteins, how they're avoiding this, how they're escaping this and um, being able to still, you know, propagate throughout the body. Um, it's still not entirely unclear. It's still not clear. So, um, so yes, this is something we're still trying to understand how they can, why are they not broken down? Um, so what, you know, there could be parts of, you know, parts of this mechanism which are faulty. Yes.
0: Well, from a um, more histological perspective, when you look at the uh, effect in the brain in something like BSE um, or scrapie or whatever, where, where a lot of this was really well understood, how similar are they or, or how conserved are just the histological uh, patterns between things like scrapey, BSE CJD, and do those have any similarity to what you see in something like Alzheimer's?
1: Yeah. So when you look at the brains of, you know, um, of the, of prion diseases, they all seem to have these characteristic holes in the brain. So they're all transmissible spongy form encephalopathies. So essentially you get this sponge-like, um, formations in the brain. So this is consistent across all prion diseases. Um, when you look at um, obviously the different prion diseases, different parts of the brain are affected. Um, as, as you know, we were looking at um, FFI. This affects, for example, the thalamus. Um, whereas other part, other diseases such as kuru affect things like the cere- cerebellum. Um, if you compare this to other diseases, such as, for example, Alzheimer's disease brains, and um, what they tend to have is, if you look at uh, compare a diseased an Alzheimer's brain to a normal, healthy individual, um, in Alzheimer's disease, you get this shrinkage, this brain shrinkage, this atrophy, um, where the brain is actually shrinking um, um, in areas such as the cerebral cortex and the hippocampus. And you have these large areas, these large sort of holes, um, these enlarged ventricle areas um, in the brain. So they do look a bit different from prion diseases, um, although you do get brain shrinkage um, in prion disease as well. Um, and obviously, this differs, again, slightly from things such as Parkinson's disease, um, because this, is, this tends to affect, for example, parts of the um, brain, such as the basal ganglia and the uh, substantia nigra. Um, and the substantia nigra is really important in Parkinson's disease um, because this is um, involved in dopamine production, which is involved in signaling in the brain. So we know that that's slightly different um, from prion diseases and Alzheimer's disease.
0: Well, even though, you know, we've been we've been investing a lot in the study of Alzheimer's, it still is a very elusive uh, disease and understanding, you know, a lot about it. But do you think that prion diseases are a potential gateway to understanding some of the more elusive parts of Alzheimer's disease?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, yes, yeah, the more we understand about one disease, it may be applicable to um, other diseases. Um, what's interesting as well is that um, originally it was thought that prion diseases were the only transmissible disease, and we thought that's what made them unique. But actually, it's been shown that diseases like Alzheimer's disease are actually transmissible as well. Um, so there's been various animal models that have shown this, and there's also been human studies um, that have shown this. Um, and there was a a study that came out of the prion unit in London where I used to work. And they showed that actually, um, Alzheimer's disease, um, can actually be, um, transmitted from human to human. Um, and this was shown in, in, these, these very sad cases where some, um, children many years ago were given growth hormone. And, um, what happened was many years later, um, many of these individuals actually came down with prion disease and also, um, Alzheimer's disease, and it was um, traced back to the fact that this um, this batch of um, growth hormone was actually contaminated um, with, um, with, prions, um, and, um, with with prions and with Alzheimer's disease. So, and um, what's actually happened is, it's we think, and there's been further studies actually that have shown that prion disease is not the only disease that's transmissible. The that Alzheimer's disease is as well, and other diseases maybe too. So, um, understanding Prion diseases is actually very important to understand um, transmission and this uh, this prion-like spreading, which occur in these other, other diseases as well.
0: Yeah, people may wonder, well, why would it be growth hormone? But that's because they used to purify growth hormone from the pituitary glands of cadavers. Exactly.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, yeah. I should have said that. Yeah. There's a whole background, whole story to this. But yes. Um. Essentially, that's what happened. So when when people had growth problems, this is how. Yes. As you said, this is how they used to do it. They would they would extract them from the, these cadavers and then obviously then use that to um, give to people who needed it to help them with um, growth problems. But obviously this doesn't happen now. Um, things are lot, <laughs> a lot better regulated now. So these things hopefully will no longer happen. But from a, from a scientific um, point of view, it's a very interesting study to show that actually, you know, many of these diseases can be passed from, you know, one species to another or from the same species to another, which we know is true.
0: Yeah, now we make uh, human growth hormone in bacteria.
1: (laughs) So, yeah,
0: make it a lot cheaper and a lot lot easier than harvesting pituitary glands, I guess. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So, how did physicians detect or recognize the onset of a prion related disease?
1: So, for a lot of these neurodegenerative diseases, um, one problem is the diagnosis. It can be very, very difficult to diagnose these different diseases. Um, so, um, you know, a lot of the symptoms that, um, individuals will get to begin with could be put down to a number of, you know, a number of common, um, conditions such as, you know, anxiety or uh, problems with sleeping, etc. So initially in the early stages, they're very difficult to diagnose. Um, obviously as the, you know, as as the disease progresses or, or if this is, you know, people who, um, are, if, you know, if they have family members who have the disease and they're getting checked. Then um, obviously it's a lot more. There's more chance that you know they have an idea of what type of um, condition they may have. Um, so generally, what happens is, um, I mean, the most accurate methods to diagnose pre diseases is are, are done post-mortem. Obviously, that's not ideal if um, in, in living patients. So, um, so what type of tests that tend to be done are things such as um, EEGs, um, MRI scans, and they can also do things such as, um, do lumbar punches so they can test the spinal fluids. Um, and these, these tests can then be used to, um, to diagnose, um, prion diseases. Um, but obviously it needs, you tend to use several different techniques in order to diagnose, um, the condition. Because obviously it's they have it, it can be very difficult to discriminate between, for example, you know, early stage Alzheimer's and, and prion diseases. Um, something that a lot of scientists are working on is trying to develop better tests. Um, so we know that prions can um, travel around the blood. We know that they can actually be found in urine as well. So a lot of people are trying to develop better, more sensitive tests where you can simply take a blood sample or a, a urine sample, and test for prions in this way. Um, the, the reason why these have been difficult to develop is the fact that the concentration of prions in the blood and urine is actually a very low concentration. So to actually make these assays work, you'd have to find a way of amplica- amplifying up the prions um, in order to be able to detect them um, in the first place. So this is why this has been very challenging.
0: Yeah, and you also would have to be able to discriminate between the misfolded form and the properly folded form, and that could probably be influenced by the chemistry of blood or urine.
1: Yeah, I mean, so so when, so the test that we tend to do to test for prion diseases is we do this, um, we do something called strain typing. So um, what happens is we know that um, you can essentially do a Western blot with um, anti-PRP antibodies, um, when you digest the protein um, with an enzyme called proteinase K, the normal form of the protein um, will actually be degraded, but the misfolded form of the protein um, won't. It's very resistant to these proteases and detergents, etc. So what you can actually do is you can actually, this well, this is what how it's still determined by uh, in post-mortem samples, is that you can run this western blot, and if there's any of the disease-associated form, that is, The resistant to this protease, you can tell that on a western blot. You can actually see that it's present there. And that's still the best way of diagnosing prion disease if they have this PK resistant form of protein in their body.
0: Well, see, that's really interesting because does that potentially offer any insight into mechanism? Because if you think about proteinase K, we know exactly how it works and where it cleaves. And Mm -hmm. Uh, and so does that tell us anything about the uh, biochemistry that may be leading to the aggregation in the first place
1: well we know that we've got they've got this sort of protease resistant core and we know that the n terminus is quite disordered um, yeah so we so yeah it's it hasn't really told us that much about the mechanism of sort of how they form etc um but it's it's still you know it's still quite interesting the fact that um the biochemical properties obviously of this misfolded form of the protein are completely different from the normal form so um yeah these proteinase k um, digestions um have told us you know a bit about the size of the fragments that are formed um, after digestion, and this is related to the um, post translational modification. So, we know that um, the protein itself is glycosylated in different places. Exactly where they are in the structure, we're not sure, but depending on the um, fragments that you get on a Western blot with these anti PRP antibodies, we can tell what type of prion disease. That people have. So when I was mentioning strain typing, strain typing um, essentially is a way that you can discriminate. Say, for example, kuru, and um, for example, classical CJD. So it's a way of being able to diagnose a specific type of prion disease.
0: Oh, that's that's pretty interesting because it basically says that depending upon the variant of the of the prion, uh, changes the way it presents to the. Proteolytic uh, mechanism, which is that's pretty cool. I mean, that's pretty interesting because it at least gives you a tool as to begin to diagnose people with different types of uh, of, of diseases and maybe manage them differently. Uh, you know, when they happen. Um, how, how long do people normally live after they develop uh, prion related diseases?
1: Um, it, once they've once they've got the symptoms, I mean, it depends for the on the individual and the different. Um, obviously the different the cases that they have, the different types of prion disease. But uh, once symptoms starts, it can be several months, it can be, you know, a few years, but it's, it's not very long. It can be quicker than that. So um, what's what's really baffling about the whole disease is this incubation period. So um, we know that from mouse studies and from what we've learned over the years from, from looking at these diseases in humans is that um, it takes a long time for the individual to come down with the disease even after for example in mouse models they've been injected with prions so what's happening in this long incubation period is not entirely clear so this incubation period in humans can last from 10 20 30 40 years so what's actually happening in that process when you when, it, when you're asymptomatic is is not entirely clear and it's, it's it's a really really interesting um you know part of prion disease what's actually happening in, in this long incubation time
0: so if uh, people wanted to learn more about your program and, you know, what you do, uh, more about Prions, is are you on social media or do you have a website?
1: Yeah. So um, I'm on Twitter. So um, my Twitter feed is at Cassie IJ Terry. Um, and um, yeah, so and you can also look at my, um, my profile and my work profile if you want. So it's at uh, London Metropolitan University. And you can just look for my staff profile there under Cassandra Terry.
0: All right. Very good. Well, Dr. Terry, thank you so much for joining me. I think this was a fascinating episode. And, you know, in the future, if there's any big breakthroughs or anything else you'd like to discuss in this area, please let me know. I think that this will be a really great episode. So thank you again.
1: Thank you very much. And thanks so much for having me on here.
0: And for all you listeners, thank you again for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Write those reviews on iTunes or wherever you consume podcast media. Throw us a little love on the Patreons if you like. We've been using that these days primarily to help promote the podcast to audiences that maybe haven't seen it before. And our numbers are going up and it's obviously working beautifully. So thank you very much for that. Uh, This is the Talking Biotech Podcast and we'll talk to you again next week.
2: Talking Biotech podcast presents the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. Comment on today's episode on the Talking Biotech Facebook page. Send comments and suggestions to kevinfalta@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And remember tell a friend, write a review or float us a little love over on the Patreons. Your support will directly translate into this podcast and broadening science education efforts everywhere.
0: You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra